Welcome to Cleveland Clinic Cardiac Consult, brought to you by the Seidel and Arnold Miller Family Heart, Vascular, and Thoracic Institute at Cleveland Clinic. Morning, I'm joined here today with Dr. Bakin, who's director of our state-of-the-art coronary artery bypass surgery center. And he's here today to talk to us about bypass surgery and some of the great things that we've done at Cleveland Clinic and leading the practice um, to talk about some of the research and outcomes and the types of techniques that we do at Cleveland Clinic. So welcome, Dr. Bakin. Thank you, Betsy. It's a great honor to be with you. Always a pleasure. Um, again, this uh, is a Zoom interaction between you and me, so if it's not as vivid and if my face is uh, not looking exactly in the <laughs> right direction, forgive the technology and forgive me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not fessed out with it yet. Yes, we're all in a new world right now. <laughs> so you have been involved in a lot of research and even in guideline committees and talking about coronary artery bypass surgery over the past years. Um, so I'd like to kind of dive into some of the research that you've done and some of the information that you've been providing in your publications, et cetera. Um, can you talk a, a little bit about the different types of um, coronary artery bypass surgery um, conduits that um, you've written about? Yeah, um, that's a great question. It's really the forte of the program of the clinic. You know, it's, it, when, when cabbage was introduced to the uh, surgical community uh, back in the late 60s and 70s, Dr. Favaloro, who was here, actually used the internal thoracic arteries, um, uh, in, a, in both of them actually, in what's called the Weinberg procedure. He didn't do the anastomosis. Those were the early years before the actual cabbage operation where they actually sewed the um, internal thoracic artery to the coronary vessels. So it also uh, evolved over the years, and, and they realized at the clinic in, in, in the 80s that this uh, internal thoracic artery stays open anecdotally from the heart caths that they did in collaboration with Dr. Sons, who introduced the coronary angiography to the world. And they published the sentinel study, uh, the seminal study, I should say, um, in 1986 in the New England Journal of Medicine, demonstrating that patients who get an internal thoracic artery, ITA to the LAD, um, have better patency of the ITA to the LAD compared to a vein, and that was associated with a strong survival differential in favor of using the ITA. And then in the 90s, Dr. Lytle demonstrated that using two ITAs is better than one, and so on and so forth. So, so, so at the clinic, the preference has been for years to use more arteries, specifically more bilateral internal thoracic arteries than, than, than veins, and also to use the radial arteries when possible. And some patients get the total arterial revascularization, meaning they get their, both their internal thoracic arteries and radial arteries if they need to bypass more than uh, one blockage. So there's, there's the ITA use to the LAD, which is the absolute minimum, and there is using more than one ITA, and then there's using two ITAs plus a radial artery. Whether you combine them with veins or not depends on the uh, number of vessels involved, the severity of the disease, and the condition of the patient. The default strategy for any patient that comes and sees us in clinic is using multi-arterial grafting for multiple blockages. Mm -hmm. So um, I know there was always these concerns about using um, both 
um, thoracic arteries, ITAs, and what did your research find as far as, you know, the patient outcomes with that? Well, yeah, that's an excellent point. There's, there is concern and anxiety among surgeons and certainly patients that, hey, if you use both arteries, they supply the blood to the sternum. Mm -hmm. And then if you devascularize the sternum, then you increase the risk of infections and mechanical complications such as sternal mal malunion and the, the dreaded complication of a deep infection, which is mediastinitis. And indeed, the ART study uh, demonstrated that you double to triple those complications in patients who receive uh, bilateral ITAs compared to one. But that same randomized study, which is the largest to date, demonstrated that if you use meticulous technique and you skeletonize those ITAs, then you actually take that risk and mitigate it and nullify it. And that's our experience at the clinic. We haven't had a sternal wound infection for a long, long time. It's not zero, but it's as close to zero as possible, primarily because of two things. One, the technique, mm -hmm. and second, patient selection. So if you get a morbidly obese patient with really poorly controlled diabetes, who's a smoker, you may wanna think twice about using bilateral internal thoracic arteries. Um, Having said that, in that same patient, you could use a radial artery instead, for example, mm -hmm. if you want to use a multi-arterial strategy. So I think you got to select your patients and you got to select your surgeon when it comes to using bilateral ITAs. Um, and as far as um, surgery itself, um, you often talk about complete revascularization and what, what are your specific goals during surgery? Uh, the, the specific goal is that to achieve uh, an immediate excellent outcome with low morbidity and mortality and a long-term outcome. We're not talking a long term of a year. We're talking about 5, 10, 20, 30 years. So you got to go and do a perfect operation. And, and uh, by that, I mean you bypass every single major vessel that has disease and you use the best possible conduits. And we prefer to use more arteries when possible. And sometimes we do use veins, but those veins have to be good quality veins. And um, so that when we study those patients in the future, if they ever get symptoms, uh, which could be unrelated to heart disease, those um, bypasses will stay open for as long as possible. And, and we have studies from the clinic that demonstrate um, excellent outcomes over 20 years. Not many studies involving stents or indeed um, other revascularization procedures have that track record and, and we're proud of that, of this track record. Mm -hmm. um, there's a, been a lot of discussion over the years about um, off-pump versus on-pump um, bypass surgery. What are, what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, there's, there's lots of debate, uh, which still goes on surprisingly mm -hmm. enough. Uh, I was involved and still involved in the Ruby study that demonstrated that um, really no real advantage to off-pump cabbage. In fact, you may um, have issues with graft patency using the off-pump technique. This study was criticized because it was primarily conducted in a VA setting and the surgeons and investigators were criticized. But then other studies um, such as the Andre Lima study, uh, the coronary study, and the GoCape study from Germany um, demonstrated essentially similar outcomes, meaning that there's no difference 
in um, um, major outcomes in MACE and survival um, up to five years uh, between off-pump and on-pump cabbage. And the criteria that they used in the coronary study was experienced surgeons. And in the German studies, uh, study they used older and higher risk patients. So the arguments against Ruby all fell through the cracks and the, the surgical community realizes right now that indeed, in general, within a randomized controlled trial setting, there's really no difference in outcomes between on-pump versus off-pump. And um, in fact, retrospective studies and um, outcomes from centers with highly experienced surgeons struggle to identify the difference and struggle to identify an advantage for off-pump. Um, maybe um, well summarized by um, an inter international consortium of experts that um, concluded by saying that in the hands of off-pump experts, you could achieve uh, better outcomes in softer clinical endpoints, such as less transfusions, less atrial fibrillation, uh, but not in major outcomes such as stroke, such as renal failure, such as uh, perioperative mortality. Uh, so in summary, I think they're equivalent if you choose your surgeons and if you choose your patients and match them together um, in, in an appropriate way. So you are always looking at quality and outcomes and quality improvement. Um, and sometimes cabbage is often thought of as just a common procedure. And, um, but what are the certain considerations that you have and the different types of um, things that you've put into place that help improve quality outcomes? Yeah, I think, I think you're right, but uh, I'm in charge of quality and uh, I, uh, it's always been a topic of tremendous interest to me. And I think it really starts by um, the preoperative phase. You gotta select your patient, you gotta select your surgeon. And let's look at the patient. You gotta look at the physiologic risk profile of the patient. You gotta look at the age, you gotta look at the frailty, uh, you gotta look at the comorbidities and the life expectancy. And then you gotta look at the anatomic aspect, which is uh, how do the coronaries look like? What's the atherosclerotic burden, the size of the vessels, the quality of the water? And then you gotta tailor your operation to achieve the best possible outcome. So for example, a patient with a calcified ascending aorta with atherosclerosis within the lumen, you want to do an off-pump, no-touch technique, meaning that you're not going to put them on the hotline machine, you're not going to manipulate that aorta, and you're going to use a total or multi-arterial revascularization, basing your blood supply for the bypass on the internal thoracic arteries that are left inside you or connected together in a composite. Um, on the other hand, if the aorta is healthy and there's bad diffuse disease with small vessels, you want to do an on-pump strategy that achieves complete revascularization. And again, you want to try and maximize the number of arteries when possible to ensure excellent long-term outcomes. Because again, yes, you want to have a, as perfect as possible short-term outcomes, but you also want to make sure that that patient um, is, is enjoying quality of life and, and prolonged survival for many years to come. Um, so we, we look at the uh, perioperative metrics and one way to look at that is the STS uh, performance and uh, we've been proud to be a three-star program for, for many years. 
our mortality has been less than 1% for coronary artery bypass surgery for as long as I remember. Despite the complexity of the cases, we get many referrals and turn downs from elsewhere, regionally, nationally, and internationally. And we get uh, reoperations, uh, first, second, third reoperations. So, so that those excellent outcomes are despite the high degree of complexity of those patients. We have a great team and um, our results match that great team performance. So you were just um, mentioning to me earlier about um, high-risk bypass surgery. I think that's a, you know, an important um, discussion, especially for our healthcare providers who may be listening to talk about what do you do in patients that really are very sick who are transferred here and how you work with the teams to provide the best outcomes for those patients. Yeah, those are challenging patients, and uh, we have an open-door policy. We like those challenging cases. We know how to take good care of them. Uh, it's really the strength of the clinic uh, and has been for many, many years. So um, just to give you an example, um, last week we had a patient transferred to us from another cardiac program uh, because it's a very complex patient. It's a patient in his 70s who had a big heart attack and uh, develop multi-system organ failure and they couldn't stent him. Um, he, uh, his liver function tests were uh, highly elevated and abnormal. Uh, his kidney function was deteriorating rapidly. And in that context, taking this patient who needs a multi-vessel bypass to surgery in an emergency is a very high-risk procedure because surgery is stressful, as you know, and um, that patient would not have tolerated uh, general anesthesia and cardiopulmonary bypass. It couldn't have been done off pump. So um, what we did for that patient is that we stabilized that patient on a temporary mechanical support. We placed an auxiliary impeller. Um, and by the way, he had a balloon pump, which wasn't sufficient. So we actually, um, balloon pump keeps you in bed because you need to lay flat. It's going through the femoral artery. I mean, you could move it to an auxiliary position, but the balloon pump only gives you about a liter to a liter and a half of support. And that was not sufficient for a failing heart with an ejection fraction of 20%. So what we did was we took him to the operating room that same day and placed a right auxiliary impeller to give him over five liters of support. And within days, his liver function uh, began to turn towards normal. Um, his kidney functions began to improve. And what we did was we, we cooled him off, we recovered the systems, and then took him for a multi-vessel cabbage. And he actually did well. And, and believe it or not, we actually took the impeller out at the conclusion of the procedure. And we didn't even have to put the balloon pump back. So this is just one example of a complex, high physiologic risk. We get lots of high anatomic risk, and we're really good at high anatomic risk because uh, we get the patients with very diffuse disease, small vessels, uh, multiple blockages. We know how to address those. We do multiple bypasses. We do endotrectomies. Um, we, we, we achieve complete revascularization in the majority of the cases. And we also have a high percentage of reoperations. We do more reoperations at the Cleveland Clinic than anywhere else in the world. And our results for redo cabbage have been similar to primary isolated cabbage um, since the late 90s, thanks to the accumulative experience of the excellent surgeons, my predecessors, 
We built on that experience. We built on the team experience and the institutional experience to optimize outcomes in, in reoperations. So in summary, um, our patients that undergo reoperations have outcomes comparable to those who undergo first-time operations. And uh, we have a specialized program to take care of patients in shock, patients with high physiologic risk. Well, I think that we should end on that note. That was um, really a lot of information. I could keep talking all morning with you about bypass surgery. <clears throat> but, Me too. Um, Me too. <laughs> <no>. <laughs> a lot to talk about. Um, but thank you so much for being with us this morning and I uh, hope we could do this again sometime. My pleasure. And I'd like to thank everybody who's uh, tuned in or about to tune in. Uh, please reach out to us anytime. We'll be happy to discuss by phone, uh, by, by Zoom, um, or in person. Um, thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. We welcome your comments and feedback. Please contact us at heart at ccf.org. Like what you heard? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or listen at clevelandclinic.org slash loveyourheartpodcast.